Hello, this is Todd Littleton with Path Theological, the podcast for the pastor theologian. We're a podcast that explores the intersection of life, faith, and thinking theologically, or as we used to say in old seminary days, theological reflection. Today on the podcast, I'm excited to have uh, Jeffrey Pugh. Uh, Jeffrey uh, has been on the podcast before. This would be his return engagement. We discussed his uh, little book on eschatology for uh, the, uh, well, for the common person. That's for everyone. And today we're going to uh, talk about another of Jeffrey's books that I ran on to, Religionless Christianity, Dietrich Bonhoeffer for Troubled Times. I've been uh, needing to read this, been putting it off, and then uh, given the current uh, climate, and uh, certain other impulses drove me to set them some things aside and, and get into Jeffrey's book and, and get through it. And so I'm really excited. It's one of the best conversations I've had in a long, long time. I hope you enjoy it. We'll have uh, an update about the podcast on the backside. But for now, here's my conversation with Jeffrey Pugh. Today on the podcast, I'm glad to have, uh, well, I'm going to call him a friend, but it's, it's, it's one of those friendships that developed online by email and, and uh, a return guest on the show, Jeffrey Pugh, uh, recently retired from Elon University, uh, distinguished professor of religion, and uh, intrigue for me, a Bonhoeffer scholar. And if you, uh, like me, have pastored and folks have pointed to uh, the cost of the discipleship or life together, you probably have a particular perspective on Bonhoeffer, and we'll hope you've not read He Who Shall Not Be Named's book on, on Bonhoeffer uh, and maybe picked up something by, uh, by Jeffrey. His book, Religionless Christianity, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Troubled Times, is what we're going to talk about today. So, Jeffrey, thanks for being on the show. And I don't mind talking about He Who Shall Not Be Named. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure we'll get there. <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, you know, I, I thought about this. Uh, when you were on the first time, we talked about your little book on eschatology in the yeah. uh, Homebrewed series. Yeah. And the irony is, is that there is there is a connection between what you've written here and kind of some of the underlying things we talked about, about that little uh, accessible book on uh, dismantling certain eschatological uh, positions, if you will. So. Yeah. Um, I, I have to tell you, I've marked so much in the book that we won't have time to hit everything. Okay. But what I'd like to do is in your, um, in the uh, preface, you, you, you write this oddly enough, there are people today whose first thought is what would Bonhoeffer do? And the truth is we don't know because Bonhoeffer never believed in absolute rules. He responded as a Christian rooted in the realities of the moment, and those concrete moments colored his actions in ways that seemed quite contradictory to us, looking at them from the position of today. So in a sense, Bonhoeffer, like others in Christian history, have been something of an inkblot test, mm -hmm. how you respond to him. And so um, help, help kind of set the table a little bit because you're trying to expose some things about Bonhoeffer and his times that I have to say, though written, I think what published in 12, probably you probably finished it in 10 or 11 would be my guess. No, eight. So we're talking 12, 12 years ago. This could yeah. have been written today. Well, thanks. This is, yeah, I mean, have. it's so prescient that it's, 
and and if anybody were to go back and you know consider who was uh, in um, political dominance in 08, for instance, this isn't really a matter of one party over another. This is the matter of the circumstances in our our country and really in our world, and that that's what really was so compelling. So, if Bonhoeffer uh, was responding variously to the particular concrete realities of his day. Um, well, how, how does how does that help us think about our absolutizing responses? Well, I, you know, I mean, that's a good question. Let me just back up for just a minute and yeah. say that uh, Bonhoeffer has been embraced by people all along the theological and the political spectrum. So conservative to liberal, in whatever terms those mean. Um, And for different reasons, Bonhoeffer has been embraced because people see or resonate within his writings and his sort of life's example, um, aspects of the faith that for them become sort of central or concretized. So, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we need to do is on both ends of that continuum and all along, I think we need to continually be thinking about how would we critique the liberal, for instance, embrace of Bonhoeffer? How would we critique the conservative embrace of Bonhoeffer? And, and how would we can critique Bonhoeffer himself, Um, because in in the embrace of Bonhoeffer, there's been a lot of hagiography. There's been a lot of sort of um, Bonhoeffer the saint, and we lose sight of him as a a real human being caught in enormous cultural and political pressures, Mm. and he's just trying to respond the best way he knows how as to what faith in Christ really means in the moment in which he finds himself. So in all of those sort of continuums, there's room for us to step back, think about how it is we embrace Bonhoeffer, how it is others embrace Bonhoeffer. And I think central to the book that you've just finished is Bonhoeffer's continual wrestling with the concrete, material situation in which he finds himself at any given time in his life. So the Bonhoeffer that we read uh, at various times, if he seems contradictory, it's because he's wrestling with different things at different times. Mm -hmm. And I think that there is a consistency in his wrestling with these And I think that the consistency for Bonhoeffer is always Christological. Mm. What does Christ mean in the particular situation in which he finds himself? So this is a man who can preach um, what appear to be themes that an Anabaptist would be comfortable with um, in 1930s, even as late as 1936. Um, and yet can, can be a part of, and I, here I would disagree with other authors, 
uh, he was most definitely uh, a part of the conspiracy to assassinate Hitler mm -hmm. in that he, he knew what the plans were, he knew what was going on, and he participated with the conspirators in trying to save Germany from that abyss of the deep uh, mm -hmm. to which they had been subjected. Mm -hmm. So I just want to say that I know that's a long-winded way of answering your question. No, no, For him, good. concrete reality um, gives us <clears throat> different images of Bonhoeffer, but the consistency through that is what does Christ mean for us today? And that's how he, he ends, you know, his corpus if you look at letters and papers from prison, he writes this outline of the book um, toward the end of his life. He says, what is, what's bothering me incessantly is who is Christ for us today? What does Jesus mean for us today? Um, and he's looking at the total collapse and capitulation of a church to the reigning political order when he's writing this. All right, I'll stop there. No, no, I, I, that's great. So, so for some who have heard or read the phrase like like I have, you know, um, the early Bonhoeffer and the late Bonhoeffer, what you've really done is helped uh, the, us who, who um, would tend to think about that in terms of some sort of uh, moment that shifted something in his mind or something in the, his concerns. But instead, the way you've laid it out is, is he's been consistently applying that question all along. So early and late are really only related to his concrete circumstances. Is, well, that, I, is that fair? I, I think that's, that's a fair response to what I'm saying. And, and actually, we can nuance it a little bit, right? Okay. Because, for instance, when he's in Barcelona as a pastor, mm -hmm. um, he gives a sermon, and the sermon is almost a kind of a affirmation of German nationalism. Mm. Um, but he's doing it in the sense of, you know, what is this, what is this Christological moment? What does Christ demand from me in this particular position? And he later on um, is obviously turned away from the kind of German nationalism rooted in that racist anti-Semitic um, hatred that seems to uh, fuel the engine uh, of Germany in the 1930s, he moves away from that. So there are ways in which you could say he's he does have changes within that concrete moment that, that would lead him probably to reject an earlier position he held. Mm -hmm. I think if he could go back and look some of, at some of, if he could have gone back and looked at some of his early material, he might have said, well, I'm not so sure. He, in fact, he does this for the discipleship book. He says, there are things in there I wish I'd said differently. Now, he, mm -hmm. he never discounts his, his writing there. He just said, there are things in here I would probably say much differently now. Well, that, that's kind of helpful because really really all of us at some point, if we're going to deal with our own concrete realities, are probably going to look back on something years ago and say, well, I might have wished I'd have said that, or I might even repudiate something that I had held pretty strongly. And, yeah. and that's that's okay. We, for some reason, we're embarrassed by those things and don't, we should, yeah. you know, as if 
we don't grow and learn and, and experience the world different. Uh, but, but that's really helpful because a lot of uh, my friends, for instance, uh, who, who wrestle with maybe a, um, a second naivete about the Bible are, are become a bit embarrassed because of something they said, you know, before. And I've got yeah, another friend who yeah. said, if he said, if, if I'm not a little embarrassed uh, by something I've said in the past and I've not learned anything along <laughs> the way, you know, so that, that it seems to be something that ought to be for us who grapple with our own concrete realities today, a little bit of a, you know, you're not, you know, you don't possess exhausted knowledge. You're going, you're going to learn and your concrete experiences aren't always going to be the same. So give yourself a break, you know? Yeah. Uh, I, I think that we need to do that um, as far as the fact that, that faith is a journey mm-hmm. and it's, it's not all there at the, at the beginning, it's not even all there at the end, but it is on the journey that we are continually growing and, and, and moving. I want to give you one concrete example of what yeah. Bonhoeffer would do or say maybe differently. In discipleship, he, he has this image of the church, of the community of faith, mm-hmm. as being uh, in a train going through enemy territory, you know. And, and the image and the metaphor itself shows a church that is sort of um, wanting to maintain its purity, wanting to maintain its, its uh, um, ecclesia or the ecclesial nature of being sort of the called out ones. Mm-hmm. And then later on in letters and papers from prison, he's, he's, we can only know Christ to the extent that we immerse ourselves in the world. So the church has left the train, so to speak, and it's it's now immersed itself in the world. It, it is now taking upon itself the sufferings of the world as Christ takes on suffering. Um, so I think the, that, that that's a concrete way, for instance, mm-hmm. yeah. in which he, he, it's not that he necessarily contradicts himself. He just understands his vision right. of incarnation has expanded itself to realize that we, we are not tucked away from the world. We are immersed in the world and its sufferings. Well, isn't that, is it, isn't that really, um, isn't that really kind of ongoing grappling? So, so I don't want to pitch back to your eschatology book we were talking about, but remember we had conversations about the way that in the seventies and, and, and with, with, uh, the uh, particular dispensational framework, the church as a train through enemy territory actually is not a bad metaphor for that particular idea. Mm-hmm. And, and so we, we still are grappling as, as a community of faith with how to live in that concrete reality and, so for Bonhoeffer, as I work through your book, you you were pointing out the his realizations left him still asking the question, but he came, if I remember correctly, he came to say that um, one of the key uh, places he would return is the Sermon on the Mount. Yes, and and in that became his move, what we might say, down and in. So getting off the train, as opposed to trying to figure out how to protect from what's going on around him, because now he's immersed. 
it's a convoluted question. So maybe I should go back and say, so when you were remarking about early on, you know, he had embraced a form of German nationalism, but historically, after you've been beat down after World War One, you're trying, you're, you're living among a people who are trying to reestablish that they're not all horrible, that they, they're, they're, they're not enemies to everybody. And so you're trying to get some pride. Sure. And, and, and so you can get, anybody can get swept up in, you know, let's make Germany great again. Sure. And, and so, you know, only until we see there's something lying behind that, that's sinister. Are we going to realize maybe as Bonhoeffer did? And in that crisis moment, seeing what was occurring pushed him to, um, let's see if I, if I read right, the Sermon on the Mount. And then, and then um, I read, meant to send it to you, but I read recently that a descendant of Bonhoeffer actually was, was, uh, given a collection of books that had been passed down in his family. I don't know if you saw it, handwritten notes in the margins. Um, and he had asked his uh, grandmother one time, I, I think it goes, you know, what about the Eastern church? And and there was some encouragement for him to do that. I don't know, that may be fictional, that may be hagiography as you describe mm-hmm. it, but he was looking for a, a way to get off the train, so to speak, and and how that would look in his given context. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I think we, we still always battle that. I think the church is still trying to figure that out in every particular moment that we find ourselves in. Is that a fair connection? Um, I'm going to go ahead and say yes. Okay. Um, we, we are always, and I'm going to go back to something you said earlier, we're always trying to figure out our relationship to the culture in which we find ourselves. Um, and in that culture in which we find ourselves, there are certain shapers and formers of our identity. Um, and I think one of the issues is what are the forces that shape Christians in the world in which we, in which they live? And are we alert or aware or discerning enough to understand what those forces are? Now I, in throughout that whole book, um, one of my primary arguments is that nation states, economies, um, other structural institutions form the mind and the soul of the Christian. Yeah. Um, Bonhoeffer was no different than the rest of us. So if in the 1920s he does have a, a, a sort of... Um, I want to affirm my culture. I want to affirm my people. You know, none of us are immune from wanting that affirmation of all of us want to be patriots in a certain sense. Right. Right. Um, But patriotism becomes defined under concrete pressures in certain and different ways. So what we see now in America, and let's just jump right to it. Mm-hmm. Um, is our identity, there are those who want to shape our identity toward a, in a certain direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and that direction is the sort of a patriotism rooted in um, despising others, mm-hmm. um, a patriotism rooted in 
white nationalism, mm -hmm. um, a patriotism rooted in a kind of nostalgia for a white America where white males ran the show and everybody else. Now, the minute that I say those words, I know those are going to be offensive sure. to those who are being shaped by that, by those very forces. Right. And they're going to say, well, no, that, well, yes. And, and go ahead and own it. And then tell me how Jesus, um, who God so loved the world, right? The world, mm -hmm. not your tribe, not your group, not your community, but the world. Right. Um, tell me how that fits in. Uh, and we can have that discussion. And, and I often do, and it often ends poorly um, <laughs> yes, be, because all of those forces that seek to shape us, we're, we're not aware of them. So we don't, we're, we're unaware of how capitalism shapes us. We're unaware of how the day-to-day -day lives that we live are shaped by those, those larger institutional forces to which we actually do feel helpless. And, you know, and when we do feel helpless, then we are sort of drawn to those people that say, I have the answer. Yes. I know exactly what, what you're looking for. And the answer is this. Um, and too often those who have the answer um, have the answer as a means of controlling us, um, not as a means of delivering us to um, the salvation of community, but it is the salvation of do what I tell you to, and I'll keep you safe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I feel like when, I'm preaching now. No, no, yes, it's awesome. So when, when um, we start looking at how to um, recognize those forces and, and when we look back to this phrase or this descriptor, religionless Christianity. Um, how would you help those who are listening in who may not be terribly familiar with Bonhoeffer or this phrase? How would you, uh, how would you describe that in such a way that it, it doesn't, that it communicates this idea of really, as I understood it, you know, really kind of stripping away what are those forces? And sometimes that the very idea of the religious or religion can pack in uh, a, a number of those actual forces and can be utilized even by those forces in such a way that it appears as though um, you can conflate the two with ease. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, religion is a, as a human developed force, if you will, as a humanly developed social kind of energy. Um, religion has throughout time and all over the planet been that force which is able to take contingent, historically conditioned things like politics and economics, et cetera, et cetera, and root those in the realm of the transcendent to where the, the unquestioned assumption of that connection becomes everything that's happening is happening because of God's will are the God's will. So then this is why we get divine right of Kings. 
are are the sun emperor. Um, you know, this is why we get certain structures that are conditional, historical, transitory, and those become absolutes because religion has taken those things or those things have taken religion as a legitimation and justification for their existence. So for instance, this is what enters, enters into the church after Constantine, mm-hmm. right? Constantine, you know, and, and if you lived back then, you would have taken the deal. Constantine says to the church, uh, we're, I'm going to stop killing you, but I want your religion to be the religion that legitimates and justifies the empire. And we've been living with the results of that for 1700 years. Mm-hmm. So, so religion plays a powerful role in legitimating um, the structures that we live in, the concrete realities that we live in. Now, I want to go back to 1932, 1933, and uh, Hitler takes power uh, in January of 1933. Bonhoeffer is on a radio address like two days later, I think, and he's talking about the Fuhrer principle, and he's talking about sort of all authority being located within one human being and the danger of that for a culture and a society. What gives him the ability to understand what's happening? When all around him, massive amounts of Germany are cheering Hitler Mm -hmm. because Hitler says he is going to make Germany great again. He is going to restore national pride. He is going to redress all the wrongs, (coughs) excuse me, that were (coughs) done to Germany in the 1920s in the aftermath of World War I. He's going to wipe away all of the sin and the degradation of the Weimar Republic. Um, he's going to clean out all of those filthy nests of, of uh, decadent uh, uh, nightclubs and things like this. And the Christians in Germany, by and large, are totally on board with this. Mm-hmm. Not just the German Christians. Um, in the early stages, most of Christianity was sort of prepared to embrace Hitler. Mm. Now, one of the things that we have to keep in mind, it's hard for us to keep this in mind. In 1933, Hitler wasn't Hitler. Right. He, he was another politician who had made political promises. And, and by the way, Hitler had a theology which many people don't realize, and his theology was rooted in the word providence. So to the end of his life, you know, he invoked providence for whatever happened to the extent that whatever happened was in God's will. Mm -hmm. So when he's taking over all these countries, it's providence. Mm -hmm. When he escapes assassination after assassination attempt, it's providence. And he conveys this understanding of providence has delivered us to this moment. Now, that's the working of religion. Yeah. That's, that's religion um, legitimating what happens in history as God's will. Mm-hmm. And that's what Bonhoeffer rejects. Um, and he, I think he rejects it early on. I think he's fairly consistent about his sort of discernment of the danger 
uh, of religion operating and religion uh, as, as in its Christian form as operating to legitimate and justify early on Hitler's moves. Now, later on in, in the 1930s, people start to, with the passing of each, the Enabling Act and other things like this, and then later on the Nuremberg Laws, people start to understand, oh, sh- crap, mm-hmm. we're, we're, we're in danger. Mm-hmm. Um, so you get the Confessing Church, for instance. But there's a, a good number of people that never leave that Christianity of the culture. Mm-hmm. They, they never leave that um, nationally based identity. Um, I'm, a, I'm a German, therefore I'm a Christian. Well, we know what Kierkegaard says about it. You know, I mean, I'm, a, I'm Danish. Uh, I live in a wonderful country. All the cows here are Christian because they're Danish cows. I mean, you know, that, that, that kind of assumed identity between your nation and your faith um, is something that I think Bonhoeffer then throughout his 30s, throughout the 30s, he, he looks at increasingly critical, and then he ends up with religionless Christianity, where in his cell, he's saying, and I'm going to go ahead and paraphrase, and, and I'm sure that many people can take issue or I'm happy for them to disagree with me on this. Right. Where Bonhoeffer comes to the point, he says, how do I extract Christ from the gravity? How do I remove Christ from the, the, the muck of nationalism, of anti-Semitism? of the appeals to uh, war and, and violence that I see happening all around me. How, how is Christ the Christ of the religion less? Mm. Um, because he's seen a Christ that has been attached to religion. And, and, and this is the religion that structures the identity of the German citizen. You must believe X. Um, and this has been going on for 400 years in Germany from, from the time of Luther and the alliance of church and state, um, that connection between the state, the nation, the culture, and faith has, has it's, it's taken root, it's grown, it, it's just the air that people breathe. So what allows a person to step outside of their cultural context and say, what is the centrality of Jesus for me in this moment? that I'm living in and in, in, in the allegiances that I'm being asked to make. Right. So that, yeah. that's what I think religionless Christianity is. It's not a doing away with Christianity. It's not even a doing away with God as, as some people assume as Eric Metaxas seems to think the death of God theologians assumed. It's an understanding that Christianity and God itself can be cultural constructs um, that lead us into allegiances that are ultimately parochial, racist, and uh, uh, death-dealing. Mm. Yeah, it's ironic. I was, I was reading a little devotional this morning, and, and uh, uh, the writer had a quote from Frederick Douglass. <laughs> and, 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 and Douglas sounds exactly, I mean, this quote is, is virtually exactly what you've been describing, where he draws a distinction 
between uh, the way Christianity is described in the land of slavery mm -hmm. and the Christianity that he has um, become aware of and alert to in, in, the, in the scriptures in Jesus. And so, you know, his line, I, I, I don't have it memorized, but, you know, his line is, I really like this Christianity that's, it's, that's uh, peaceful. And, and he has a few other adjectives, but I don't really, I really don't think we can call this Christianity where it's uh, slave holding, women whipping. Uh, I think that's deceit, he says. To call that Christianity is deceit. Right. We, we want, we want the, the enslaved to be peaceful. Um, because then they don't demand of us, are you truly, is this what Jesus intended? Um, so. Yeah, and it, it reminded me of a, a, a line. Um, oh, you're, in, you're in, uh, in your chapter, The Eclipse of Religion, and uh, you're setting up a quote. And, and so um, when we are thinking about those moments that alert us to how do we recognize the forms that the, the forces that have formed us or shaped us that um, have maybe harnessed Christianity in an mm -hmm. adverse way. Mm -hmm. you, um, even worse from the perspective of those comforted by their religion Christian faith places us closer to our enemies than we wish to be. And I hear you quote uh, um, Bonhoeffer, uh, and I think it is. Jesus Christ, however, was in the midst of his enemies. It was precisely there that he wanted to be. And there we too should be. That distinguishes us from all other teachers and religions. The devout want to be among themselves. Christ, however wants to be in the middle of, in the midst of our enemies, just as he was, wants us to be in the midst of our enemies, just as he was. Mm -hmm. That didn't play too well. Mm -mm. Uh, that, 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 uh, you know, I, I still am, I'm still thinking of Arthur Brooks at the yeah. National Prayer Breakfast. Yeah. Giving 14 minutes on the problem in our country is contempt. Uh, the solution is love your enemies. And then we hear, I don't think I agree with you. Right. And, I, and, and so, you know, it'd be one thing, and you and I probably could spend quite a bit of time drawing distinct parallels for what we're talking about. But the truth of the matter is, is what the president said in, in that his initial words responding to Brooks is really what all of us face. We, we all face that. That we none of us none of us really want to be in the midst of our enemies, mm -mm. and if that but but if that's the place that to borrow that line, I think you I th it, um, I know I I know I've heard it elsewhere, but I want to say early on you uh, where, where I got it in in your writing was this down and in. That's the down and in move. That is, you know, uh, letting go of whatever comforts. Whatever circumstances that that uh, reinforce the forces that are shaping me, while at the same time they're utilizing the vocabulary of faith to keep me um, loyal, mm -hmm. the 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 move to uh, question where I am with that is the move down and in. 
it's the move that says, okay, well, let me find out why are they my enemies? Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how about I spend some time with my enemies instead of um, looking for ways to retaliate against Well, and, and further complicating this, Bonhoeffer was part of an, an attempt to erase the enemy. Yeah. And that's where, that's where I want to, you know, I think, and I don't want to be superficial about it uh, because you, you obviously have, um, you know, greater awareness of, of, of what he's written about and, and, and kind of the circumstances than I do. But <clears throat> that goes back to the fact that that's very difficult, mm-hmm. you know, so. Uh, what, what's I don't difficult? Want, it, it's difficult to, <laughs> to want to be in the midst and not want to yeah. eliminate. And, yeah. and so I don't want anyone to hear, you know, me or, or infer that I'm, I'm projecting onto something you've said that, oh, you know, this is an easy thing. Um, when you describe that this is the, the haunting thing that Bonhoeffer died with, that is the question he, he was hung with. How, 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 does, how does Christ impact my concrete moments? Well, I mean, I still have to admit to my own foibles and my own fears and my own, my own, um, you know, reckoning. So I don't want to in any way lead anyone to believe that I think that's just easy. Uh, and I think your point that, you know, he was involved in a conspiracy to erase his enemy is, you know, is something we need to, you know, reckon with it. We're not talking about something that's just, oh, okay. Well, yeah. So let me, let me respond to that. Yeah. Um, well, first, first of all, um, when the neo-Nazi rally was held here in Charlottesville, um, you know, on August the twelfth in nineteen uh, or twenty seventeen, I felt compelled to place myself in the midst of my enemies. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we trained for five weeks. We were, I mean, you you did a, a sort of a podcast with yes, Jason and others. Yes, we did. Um, we trained for five weeks. We we went out to to be present with our enemies. But I, and I thought a lot about Bonhoeffer that morning, and that's what this chapter in the, the new book on Bonhoeffer's political theology is about. It's, it's entitled Bonhoeffer in Charlottesville. Oh, wow. And I've thought a lot about that uh, moment, um, the fear I felt, uh, the anxiety that I felt. Um, but I also thought about the community that was gathered around me. And, and here's what uh, it seems like we need to grapple with is that it's the community of faith that becomes important in those moments. It's not the individual, Um, you know, too much of Christianity is seen in individualistic terms. My salvation. I gave my life to Jesus. I mean, um, which by the way, Bonhoeffer said, God was absolutely unconcerned about our salvation. Um, but it's, it's the community of people that keep me from being a coward. It's a community of people that keep me from being a killer when I'm in a situation where I want to strike back uh, and kill my enemy. And, and there was some uh, bit of that on August the 12th in 2017. There was a moment in which we were assaulted uh, by one of the groups. I think it might have been a Proud Boys. That. 
And uh, I, I, with every fiber of my being, I wanted to strike back. And in the, in the gathering of the community, I kept thinking, where is Christ in this right now? Mm-hmm. And, and is Christ in that person who's calling me a faggot priest? Mm-hmm. Um, so the tragedy of Bonhoeffer's life is that the church did not respond to the seductions of nationalism when it had the opportunity. If the church early on had recognized and discerned Hitler's call as a call to the demonic, as a call to us against them, uh, if they had understood that Christ is for all, then would things have turned out differently if the church has had Massed in the streets of Berlin or massed in the streets of Münster or massed in the streets of Heidelberg and said, no, we will not heed a call that is a call of the abyss for us to cut off other human beings from the grace of God, even though we're struggling with this understanding of national pride that we have. We are not going to allow uh, Jews to be persecuted in the name of Christianity. Um, We're going to even take a look at our Christian supersessionism to ask the question about whether or not we should even ask for conversion before we include Jews into our community or into faith, which is what happens. So there's there's a sort of a sense in which Bonhoeffer loses his community, i.e. the church, throughout the 1930s. Even the confessing church collapses because segments of it become more concerned about institutional maintenance than they do about um, about opposing Hitler and opposing anti-Semitism. So the community of faith collapses and Bonhoeffer has no other community to go to. And because life is lonely and, and can be alienating, he ends up in the community of people who are actually doing something, the conspirators. I think that's one of the great tragedies of Christianity and and one of the great um, tragedies of Bonhoeffer's life is that the community that had sustained him for much of his life was now nowhere present um, and Christianity collapsed. Uh, And this this is what happens when we give ourselves over to the idol. Um, we will find ourselves moving into positions. And, you know, there are some writers who shall not be named who say that Bonhoeffer's movement to the conspiracy was a heroic moment um, and, that, and that that is a, an example of what Christian faith can be in the moment of pressure. And my my response is that's the moment of the greatest failure of Christianity. If it moves the Christian uh, to to become a part of an assassination attempt, then Christianity itself failed. Um, and 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 so we should not lift up Bonhoeffer's move into the conspiracy as a as a heroic thing. He doesn't. Nowhere in ethics does he. You know, I mean, when he's writing about this obliquely, because he can't write about it directly, right? When he's writing about this, he nowhere says, you know, this is heroic action, or that he says, I, I must take upon myself the sins of the nation. Um, I must accept responsibility for the for the sins of my country. And and I will 
He never says he's justified. He, he says, I will actually be judged for the actions that I'm taking part in. Well, well what, what is it about a Christianity that is unable to respond to the seductions of nationalism, of racism, of racial hatred, of anti-Semitism? What is it about a Christianity that, that can't understand those forces that are seeking our allegiance are ultimately destructive to the to faith in Christ. And, and the minute that I say that, I'm cognizant of the fact that by and large, vast part of American church will take the same deal. Again, if it's offered to them again, they'll take the same deal. Public peace um, and comfort and, and institutional survival um, over against bearing witness to Jesus who gave his life for the world. Mm. And by the way, I would be called a liberal, a raging liberal. And let's go ahead. I'm going to name him now. Eric Metaxas Mm. um, would say that I am one of those people that has profaned the cause of Jesus. I'm just going to go ahead and say is unquestioned allegiance to a right-wing death cult, allegiance to Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and, I could, and that was, <clears throat> you know, we probably should just say, and there you go, and be done. Amen. I, 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 yeah, amen, <laughs> Pastor Blake. I, you know, <clears throat> I couldn't help as you were describing, and I hadn't thought about it in those terms, um, but that makes his little book, Life Together, um <clears throat> increasingly important. Yeah. Um, and, and, uh, um, and in a multitude of ways, but it, at least insofar where we are today, that the, what we've lost by individuating faith is we've lost a sense of community so that when I have the decision to make to be the coward or to kill I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm wrestling with myself mm-hmm. instead of I've got, I've got people reminding me, you know, where is Christ in this moment? And by calling and in Christian language indwelling is supposed to be with us in that moment, bearing up under the epithets that you received the, uh, um, the uh, um, bodily harm, uh, those those are the places, and and so I I had uh, I think people I think folks ought to be paying careful attention to the danger of making what we talk about when we talk about faith only about me. Right. I mean, and and you know, at you you know this as well as I do. I I have a profound the evangelical movement had a profound impact on my life. That's, mm-hmm. that's how I came into the Christian faith was through counterculture evangelicals. And right. of course, you know, then I went a little wiki there for a while, but, uh, <laughs> but, you know, Pentecostals. And, and so I want to appreciate the sort of my tradition or my heritage in that, in my personal journey. But at some point, I want to go back to life together. Mm-hmm. Um, Bonhoeffer realized that there were also flaws in the ecclesiola and ecclesia in the little church within the 
larger church, that there were, there were flaws to that because the church that sought its own purity can often withdraw from the world, right? And, and I think later on, when he comes to this notion in uh, letters and papers from prison writings of the arcane disciplines, I write about this in the book in the last mm-hmm. chapter, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that there are certain disciplines that we enter into that, that can prepare us for, for public witness, um, and that strengthen and enable us. And I, I take one, it's not just prayer, it's not just hymn singing, but I take Eucharist as one mm-hmm. of the primary examples of something that is able to reconfigure us away from a nationalistic parochial identity yeah. into an identity of the table, mm-hmm. where if I gather with other Christians to, to take of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. My recognition in that moment is that there are people halfway across the world that are also forming their identity mm-hmm. through the taking of that meal. Mm-hmm. And we can argue about real presence or whatever, yeah. but if, you know, and don't argue much about transubstantiation, <laughs> but, but, but real presence in that moment is an awareness that I am not alone. It is not just my individuality that's um, partaking of this. It is the body of Christ throughout the world. So, for instance, in a concrete way, how then could I justify or legitimate during the Cold War the stockpiling of nuclear weapons to kill Christians in Russia, who I know are also taking of the same of the same thing. And, and then people go, well, you have to protect yourself. Well, and then that's where the rubber meets the road. Yeah. Because self-protection is not the center of Christian faith. Jesus risked it all um, and, 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 and gives all. Um, Bonhoeffer, in a certain sense, moved into a position where he risked everything and he gave everything. And, and when I, when I understand what truly forms me, is it the disciplines of prayer? Is it the disciplines of Eucharist? Is it these arcane disciplines that we don't think about often? Um, even I could go ahead and throw in Bible reading, mm-hmm. um, you know, and meditation, and, you know, these things. Uh, on August the 12th, we had a two-hour worship service in the Black Baptist Church on Main Street in Charlottesville. I mean, it was packed. Unfortunately, most of those people didn't show up on the front line, mm-hmm. but, but they had other responsibilities and other duties, and, and not everybody trained for the direct action. But I remember as we were in that worship service, all of the gospel hymns that we were singing and all of the praying, and, you know, I mean, people were getting up in tongues in there and everything, and um, it was a sustaining force. It, it, it was a um, sustaining moment to sing those hymns. Mm-hmm. And then when we're online to sing this little light of mine, or we mm-hmm. shall overcome or some of those, you know, those old sort of standard chestnuts. Yeah. That's a, that's a sustaining presence. It's a discipline to sing in the midst of your enemies. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. yeah when you said um, the, uh, as you're describing the move to continue to purify the church <clears throat> and and not recognize 
the the things needed to keep forming us uh, against um, those those habits and practices that really make us you know a fallible community. Yeah, um, you've you've got a, a paragraph. The insidious nature of this is seen in the very logic of purity itself. Mm -hmm. logic that puts all of culture to its service. Mm -hmm. Miroslav Volf com comments that the will to purify contains a whole program for arranging our social worlds from the inner worlds of ourselves to the outer worlds of our families, neighborhoods, and nations. It is a dangerous program because it, because it is a totalitarian program governed by a logic that reduces, ejects, and segregates. Can we not see the Nazi agenda revealed in this quote? The more disturbing issue, though, is whether this is, in fact, the inner dynamic that drives various religious communities, Christianity included. Mm -hmm. So those practices that you drew on in the midst of those circumstances um, <clears throat> were far from a concern about purity. Right. More concern of faithfulness. And, and there was a time in my life way, way back when I was a teenager, when I thought that to take Eucharist mean you had to be pure to take it. Mm -hmm. And and if you think about the, the millions of Christians that actually believe that, yeah, um, you know, that it is precisely because of my impurity that I must keep taking it yes. and that. You know, I've become a kind of a Eucharist junkie, you know, wherever I am. And, you know, I look for where is my opportunity to do this? Yes. Because not only is it sustenance to my spirit, but it's also a reminder of, of who I am yeah. and, and what I am in the world. Uh, Wolf, that book is a it's a quote from a book called Exclusion mm -hmm. and Embrace, which mm -hmm. is probably one of the most important books I've read in the last two decades. Mm. Um and, and what I love about that book is that here's a man from, uh, I think it's Croatia, mm -hmm. who has seen civil war in his country and is committed to the embrace of the enemy rather than the exclusion. And, and he, he fleshes this out in the book in such a way that we understand that it's not an easy practice. It is extremely difficult uh, to embrace the enemy. It's extraordinarily difficult to look for reconciliation. It's extraordinarily difficult to keep space open for your opponent. Um, and, and it takes discipline to do that. Mm -hmm. And it also takes the discipline to know that it, it, your opponent may never accept that uh, open, open stance. Um, and, and his, remarks about purity really sort of caught my attention because I think about how much of religion today, American religion is, a, is about purity. You know, not just the purity culture of, of uh, sexuality, but about the purity culture of ideology, about the purity culture of so much else. Um, and, and when did purity actually enter into the picture? Um, and I have to keep that in front of me when I think about the fact that I also am tempted by the purity of my ideologies, by the purity of my theologies, by the purity of my community, that I don't want to move out into the other communities. Um, 
this was something that Will Campbell uh, and his brother to a dragonfly. I don't know. I mean, you're a Baptist. You should know that book. That should be like sacred text for you guys. Um, Will Campbell and brother to a dragonfly really, um, I have to say, just brought this home to me when he makes the un the bizarre move to moving to ministering to the Klan after working against white supremacy for his entire ministry. He sees, he, he says, is Jesus, where is Jesus there? Um, and I, I never ever realized how hard that was until recently. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I, I have to say that um, the, the purity that, Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer never asked for purity. He understands that it's it's an impossible task. Mm-hmm. Um, but we could have been the church could have been more faithful, and it wasn't. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, um, man, uh, I I could uh, abuse your time for another few hours talking about. This. Well, well, you can, but not not today because I have another appointment. <laughs> yeah, I but do. I but, do feel, but feel yeah. free anytime. Listen, it's been great. Thanks so much. I, I, uh, I've been, I've been personally helped, uh, not just thinking through some of my own, you know, things that, that keep me up at night, but also as a pastor mm-hmm. thinking about, you know, the forces that form and shape us. And then, you know, then what that looks like to, um, help people think about what is forming them that has been co-opted by another force. That mm-hmm. is their faith has been co-opted by another force and, I, and, and it's helpful. I can't even imagine. I was pastor for five years in a local church. I can't even begin to imagine how hard that job is in our present cultural moment. I, well, I just, I can't even. It's, it's folks like you who produce works like this that give us a hand. So thank you for that. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Well, till next time, thanks so much for your time. Okay, and thank you. As always, I want to thank you for listening to Pathological. You could uh, give us a hand if you uh, like the podcast. You could uh, share it on uh, your favorite social media platform. Uh, give us a, a rating and review in iTunes. That really helps us get found and rediscovered, if you will. You know, we've taken a bit of a hiatus, and we're uh, getting back kind of in the groove, if you will. Uh, As I mentioned last week, in case you missed it, I'm going to be on a trip soon to Israel, um, going with a group led by Brian and Perry Zond, and one of my fellow travelers is going to be Jason Michelli, and we're going to podcast from Israel every day uh, under the podcast title, Goys Meet God. And uh, hope hope you'll find that interested, uh, interesting, uh, and uh, helpful, insightful as we kind of talk about uh, our experience there. And we're lining up other guests for future episodes. So, uh, as always, I just want to thank you for listening, taking the time to, and and again, uh, help us out and share the podcast. And until next time, this is Todd Littleton with Pathological Peace. Mm-hmm.